Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Sanjay. You know, I've been receiving so many questions about vaccines in children. So I wanted to take a moment and just share a fascinating conversation I had recently with Dr. Vivek Murthy. He's the Surgeon General of the United States. We were talking about children in COVID-19 and the mental and the physical and the emotional tolls of the pandemic. We are both dads. My kids are a little bit older than his, but we've both been concerned about these topics almost since the very beginning of the pandemic. And of course, it's been additionally on people's minds lately with CDC's big announcement about vaccines for children five and up. My conversation with Dr. Murthy was part of the Citizen by CNN 2021 conference. I hope you find it as interesting and as informative as I did. This is Chasing Life. Vivek, Dr. Murthy, welcome. Um, I can call you Vivek. We've known each other for a long time. Please call me Sanjay. We have Sanjay. <laughs> great, great to see you. The news of the week is this authorization of the vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. And I know, uh, Vivek, you have a 5-year-old son. Uh, you've talked about him a lot. You're, you've already said you plan on getting him vaccinated, understandably. But, but I, I want to talk through this a little bit because I think it's important. How did you approach this decision? Was there anything that gave you pause? Well, Sanjay, it's a really important question. And I think you as a fellow parent and millions of other parents out there know that the most important thing to all of us as parents is the health and safety of our children. So I thought about this decision, not as Surgeon General, not as a doctor, but first and foremost, as a father. And a couple of things that I wanted to to really think about. One is, what's the toll uh, of this pandemic on my child? How much risk uh, is he at? And there, you know, it is pretty sobering if you look at the numbers. I've seen the disruption in his life in school with not being able to see friends and family. But I've also seen the numbers in terms of hundreds of children who have lost their lives to COVID, thousands who have been hospitalized, and millions who have been infected. Uh, The other thing I wanted to understand is about safety. Uh, You know, is this vaccine going to be safe? And the good news is from the clinical trials, which were designed specifically for children, uh, what we saw was that not only was the vaccine more than 90% effective, uh, but it also had a remarkably strong safety profile. And the side effects that were seen were t- like soreness in the arm, some pain and swelling in the arm, a headache, fatigue. But those lasted about a day or two. And what children were left with was protection against COVID with no evidence of serious adverse effects. So that was all good news. That's what I was looking for. And I finally wanted to see if the FDA and the CDC would sign off on this, if their rigorous review, what's really the gold standard of safety and efficacy, if that test was passed. And it was, which is why I'll be taking my son to get vaccinated. You know, I I wonder if you can help talk the audience a little bit through how you look at some of this data. You you were just talking about a little bit there, but in this particular trial for five to 11-year-olds, I think when I looked at the data, it was just under 5,000 children or so that were part of the trial. When we talk about some of these safety signals, Vivek, uh, sometimes they can be rare, but so rare that they may not get picked up in a trial that small, right? So if something occurs one in 
10,000 or something, uh, you may not pick it up. How, how, do you, how do you sort of balance that in terms of looking for safety signals and still having the confidence to proceed? Yeah, it's a good question, Sanjay. And I think the key word that you used is rare, uh, which is that you know when we look at these trials, what we're trying to understand is, are we seeing any side effects you know, in the initial trial? And in this case, we didn't see any serious side effects. But what we also know is that time matters, right? And that the vast, vast majority of adverse impacts that happen, happen within the first several weeks of getting the vaccine. These children were followed uh, for two months, uh, which is actually a fairly substantial period of time after the vaccine. And, and that's good because you wanna follow for at least that long so you understand again if, if those side effects are gonna happen. But finally, as far as the, the rare side effects or potential rare side effects may be concerned, here, here's what I think about and what I balance it against, which is what is the alternative? What is the risk of getting COVID and then having potential effects uh, on my child from that? And here's what we do know. We do know that children and adults who get COVID uh, are at risk of many organ systems being impacted, including the heart. Uh, over the last year and a half, we've had thousands of children who have gotten multisystem inflammatory syndrome, MISC. Uh, and we know that that has hit many organ systems, including the heart uh, for children. So I think about that risk as well. You know, in general, and finally, when, when I advise patients on this as well, you know, we're always trying to benefit, uh, balance risks and benefits. And what I saw, you know, in the data uh, was, and in the overall picture, was that the risk to my child uh, of getting COVID and having a, an adverse effect, uh, having one of their organ systems impacted from COVID, uh, was greater than any risks I was seeing uh, with the vaccine. And the benefits of getting vaccinated were significantly greater, not just re reduction in risk of getting ill, but also greater likelihood that my child's school wouldn't be disrupted, that they could travel and see family and friends without us worrying as much, that they could go to birthday parties and sleepovers. All of that makes a big difference in the life of uh, a child. And that's how ultimately my wife and I arrived at the decision uh, to vaccinate our son. Was, was there any consideration in your own mind, or do you think there should be consideration overall uh, of, of really looking at people who are at the highest risk for developing some of the things you were just talking about, Vivek. Um, we know that there are risk factors uh, that, that make you more likely, if you were to get infected, to develop a more severe case of, of COVID. Um, so should, should all children sort of be treated the same in your estimation in terms of vaccination, or should higher risk children be, be prioritized? Well, it's an important question, Sanjay. And I certainly think those who are at highest risk, um, children who may be immunocompromised or who may have other medical conditions or who may be in settings where their exposure to coronavirus is significantly greater, that you know we want those children to move uh, with uh, the greatest urgency for sure. Uh, but I think what we've seen over the past year and a half is that of the millions of kids who have been infected uh, with COVID under 18, millions of those have actually had no underlying medical mm. conditions. So while we do know uh, that having other medical conditions being immunocompromised puts you at greater risk, there is still significant risk uh, to kids who are perfectly healthy. And some of the greatest uh, tragedies, uh, Sanjay, have been the conversations that you know I've had and others have had with, with parents who've had perfectly healthy children who've gotten seriously ill from COVID-19. None of us ever wants uh, our child to be seriously ill. You know, Sanjay, I've had a child in the hospital uh, with illness uh, before. I've sat in the emergency room, you know, up all night, uh, petrified about what's going to happen uh, to my child. That happened a few years ago to my daughter uh, when she was one. And I know, I know the pain uh, of being a parent in that situation and not knowing if your child is going to make it or not. 
Uh, I don't want any parent to have to go through that. And so even though our kids do much better than adults when it comes to COVID, we've lost too many of them. We've had too many hospitalized. And that's why I want every child to have protection from this virus. The vaccine gives us the opportunity to protect them at long last. And that's why I'm hopeful that parents will strongly consider that option. Is your, is your child okay now, uh, re- recovered from what you're describing? Yeah, thank you. It was my daughter, actually, uh, who ended up in the hospital when she was one. And thankfully, she's okay now. But, you know, with kids, if we, as parents, if we can take a low risk to our kids and make it even lower, if we can secure their future and their health, you know, even more strongly, uh, you know, with the aid of something like a vaccine, I think a lot of people want to do that. Um, but what I do want to make sure about, Sanjay, is that people have access to the facts. And here's one of my great worries, is that I think parents have already been uh, hit with a, a, a large wave of misinformation. They're seeing it online, in their inboxes, on text threads. I worry that this may only increase in the days ahead now that a vaccine is available. We have to guard against that misinformation. And I want parents to know that their questions are important, but it's important that they also go to credible sources to get answers to those questions, like their doctor, uh, their children's hospital, their local department of health, or the CDC. Yeah, I, I am curious about this point that you're raising, uh, Dr. Murthy, just, just the misinformation. And I've, you know, as I said, you and I have been doing this for a long time. I think that this has been unprecedented. I mean, there's been misinformation in the past, even before this pandemic. I mean, you remember there were, there were measles outbreaks uh, due to poor vaccination status in certain communities. So it's not, you know, this, this is not brand new. But from a surgeon's general standpoint, what what can your office do to help combat this misinformation? Is there something that we have learned over the last 18 months, two years, that uh, can, can uh, move us forward in terms of trying to combat this in the future? I'm glad you asked, Sanjay, because you're right that misinformation is not new. It's been around for generations. But what is new is the speed and scale and sophistication with which it's spreading. And we've seen that uh, front and center with COVID-19. Now, a big part of what is enabling this in part are new technology platforms that we've developed over the years, which give us extraordinary reach. Um, but they also create the potential for this misinformation to spread. And we've seen that uh, actually happen. When we ask people where they're seeing uh, the majority of their misinformation, many of them point, in fact, to social media platforms. Now, what can we do about it? Well, in July of this year, my office uh, issued a Surgeon General's advisory on the dangers of health misinformation, in which we laid out concrete steps that all of us can take to help address health misinformation. And it has to be all of us. Uh, One of the things that individuals can do is to raise the bar on what they share uh, on social media and with family and friends, and to ask before you share a story, uh, is it coming from a credible source? And if you're not sure, uh, then don't share. But of the many other things that you know, we have to do, including actions that healthcare providers can do to speak more directly to patients on this, uh, actions that educators can do to help improve health literacy, we really need our technology platforms, particularly our social media platforms, to step up and fulfill what I see as their moral responsibility to ensure that we have a healthy information environment. And that includes being transparent with the amount of misinformation that's flowing on the sites, who is being targeted by this so that we can better protect people. Right now, they've done some uh, you know, work to help address misinformation, but not nearly enough. Uh, we need them to step up and we need them to do so quickly. You know, I was really struck when I was listening to some of the recent Facebook testimony that there are billions of, of, of fake accounts that they take down on Facebook 
billions. I mean, it was more than half the population of the world. It's almost seeming like, like if you go onto social media, you're kind of entering Westworld. You don't know if you're dealing with humans or bots sometimes. Uh, Vivek, we, we have a live question coming in from Nicholas in Georgia who asks this. When do you expect the vaccine to be available for children under five? Well, that's a good question. And I have a vested interest in, in that as well, as yeah, I have right. a three and a half year old daughter at home. Uh, so I've been waiting for that too. Look, the trials uh, for kids under five have been underway. And we anticipate that in early 2022 uh, is when we may see uh, a vaccine available for kids in that range. And I'll tell you, I can't wait for it. That's going to be an important day for us as well. If, if the numbers have come down significantly by then, and we're in a, a sense of control over the pandemic, Will you have the same sort of enthusiasm for the, for the vaccine for children that young? Do you think no matter what, they're going to be recommended likely for, for young children? Well, you know, the ultimate decision on recommending them will be up to the FDA and CDC. But I will tell you that from my perspective, I think even a few months from now, if cases come down, it'll still be important for us to be cautious and vigilant. Because think about this. In the last 20 months, we've seen cases go up and we've seen cases come down. But then we've seen them go up again. And we know that COVID has thrown many curveballs at us. This is a tricky virus. And we've got to protect ourselves, not against just the Delta wave and the current surge, but against future uh, potential surges. And that's why I think the vaccine will continue to be an important tool for adults and for kids. More of my conversation with Dr. Vivek Murthy after this short break. Now back to Chasing Life and more of my conversation with the United States Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. You know, Vivek, one thing I wanted to, to ask you about, I, there's, there's no question the physical toll of, of this pandemic. I mean, and we're still learning about what this virus really does to the body. It's still stunning to me as a, as a, as a brain uh, guy of, of how this could sort of so discreetly affect something in the brain like sense of smell, a respiratory virus like this. And, and then the, the long-lasting symptoms. I mean, we're going to be learning a lot. The other thing we're going to be learning a lot about is, is the mental toll. I mean, we're so used to having data and saying, hey, yeah, based on 20 years of looking at this, here's what happens. But we are, for the most of us, truly going through something that's really unprecedented, especially with regard to the, the mental and, and sort of overall emotional toll of this. I'm curious. I have three teenage daughters, and, you know, it's, it's been tough. I just, just being perfectly candid. It was tough keeping them at home. I think at times they would have rather been anywhere <laughs> but with mom and dad for so long. But how about for you? Were there any moments with your young children that uh, where you said, this, this is really what the mental toll looks like? Oh, absolutely, Sanjay. And I, I can certainly, uh, you know, empathize with your situation of, of, you know, having your daughters at home wanting to go out uh, and see other people. And, you know, my kids, you know, were young and, and still are young. Uh, but during the pandemic, you know, they've, they've kind of grown up during this pandemic. It's been tough, though. You know, they've missed going out and playing with other kids. They've asked at times why they can't go travel uh, and see my, my wife's parents. Um, they have wondered why they haven't been able to be in school during the pandemic. They've asked a lot of questions, uh, and they've, they keep asking us again and again, when is the coronavirus going away? Um, so I know it's taken a toll on them as well. And look, we consider ourselves relatively lucky. Uh, you know, we were able to keep a roof over our heads, keep food on the table for kids, but many parents weren't able to do that. When we look at the mental health toll of this pandemic, particularly on our kids, uh, we don't fully even understand that and appreciate that, I think, at this point, because we've been so focused 
on other areas. But but here's what we what we do know. Uh, this has been traumatic for many kids, especially the 140,000 children who have lost a caregiver to COVID-19 and the many more who have seen family members get sick. We also know that disruptions in routine uh, can be consequential for children. And being having school and youth sports and time with friends disrupted is really, uh, is really uh, powerful and, and important. And that's happened to many children. And third, we also know that social and emotional development for kids is an extraordinarily important part of their overall development. And that requires being able to get together with friends and family and have normal social interactions. And this has been challenging for many kids. It's not a surprise, Sanjay, that we've seen anxiety and depression rates rise among kids during this pandemic. But finally, here's one thing we should remember. We were not in a great place when it came to youth mental health before the pandemic. One of the statistics that really strikes me, Sanjay, is a CDC study that was done between 2009 and 2019, looking at trends in high school students, uh, which found that between in that 10-year span, uh, there was a 40% increase among uh, high school students who said they felt persistent feelings of hopelessness and despair. That accounts for actually, in 2019, 37% of high school students. That is actually extraordinary. That's before the pandemic. So COVID is a wake-up call that we have to do better when it comes to addressing mental health concerns in our youth. And that means talking about it more openly and destigmatizing it. It means getting better treatment for them. And because we have a very hard time uh, getting kids the treatment they need quickly enough, and it means investing in prevention. We have programs we know work in schools, but we're not funding them. We're not uh, implementing them. We can do so much better for our children. And to me, that's one of the key messages and lessons of COVID-19. Well, you know, you've, you've done a really exemplary job of this, I'll just say, uh, even, even prior to taking on the most recent Surgeon General appointment and, and really addressing this issue. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting. I think when in physical ailments where you have a something to measure, a blood test, a scan or something, and you can say, here's the problem, we can, we can fix this or at least to help address it, uh, we, we, we gravitate uh, toward those sort of more physical ailments, I think, in our healthcare system. When it comes to mental health, it often does get short shrift. And those numbers that you're citing even before the pandemic, it kind of, you know, stops my Hard a little bit because I'm thinking about my own kids and what their lives are like and how many uh, of our you know kids and adolescents are are dealing with some of these mental health challenges even even before the pandemic. We have to do something about it. We say it all the time. We say it should be on par, should have parity with with everything else, and yet it doesn't feel that way. Mental health, uh, you know, sort of resources and overall attention. Let's take another live question. This one from Angelica in Colorado says, my five-year-old caught COVID. She's back to normal, but I'm worried about the long-term effects of her catching it. How will the vaccine affect that? Can she still get the vaccine? Um, This is an interesting point, I think, uh, Dr. Murthy. You know, we talk about long-hauling symptoms. If someone is subsequently vaccinated, do we know anything about the impact of the vaccine on the likelihood of someone having long-term symptoms? Well, it's a good question, Sanjay, and I, I certainly appreciate where Angelica is coming from. A couple of things I would say. First, you know, I, I certainly hope her daughter is doing better, uh, you know, after her, her episode of COVID. Uh, what we do, we're still learning a lot more about long COVID. And for viewers out there who haven't heard of long COVID, it is the persistent symptoms of fatigue or shortness of breath or chest pain or brain fog that people experience for weeks or months uh, after their COVID infection. 
And what we do, there do some, does seem to be some early evidence uh, that getting vaccinated may reduce the likelihood uh, that people develop uh, long COVID if they do, in fact, get COVID. But there's more to be studied there. Another important point, though, for Angelica and for her child uh, is to know that even though she has been uh, infected in the past, her child, it is still important for her to get vaccinated. And the reason uh, is that we have seen people get reinfected uh, with COVID, and we want to mm-hmm. avoid that. Um, and we do know that from prior infection, people do get some protection, which is good. That's true with many viruses and infections. But what we don't know as well, Sanjay, is how durable and strong and consistent that protection is. In some people, that protection might be great after an infection. But we've seen, for example, uh, that in people who had only mild infections, that they don't uh, always raise the antibody count, if you will, that you do with more severe infections. We've seen that some people, based on their age, have different levels of protection that they get after infection. On the, by contrast, what we do know uh, with vaccination is that people do get uh, more consistent, strong protection from the vaccine. It's also better understood, better studied. So I would still urge uh, Angelica to vaccinate uh, her daughter, even though she's been infected in the past. It's, it's the best way we have uh, of reducing risk uh, and ensuring that we prevent not just long COVID, but the other effects that we've seen with COVID-19. I'm glad you, you, you talk about this. We could probably do a whole other session just on the immunity from infection versus the immunity from vaccine. But the, the clarity that you have with immunity from vaccine, as you're saying, is, is much better studied. I mean, there are people who do get infected that don't generate much in the way of antibodies. And sometimes it's hard to know who actually does have immunity and, and who doesn't. I think the point that you're making, I, you know, one th- I just want to go back to the, the mental health poll again, because I, I really think this is so important. You know, when, when you go back and again, there's not a lot of precedent for what we just experienced. So people who say, look, this is what's likely to happen now, given the last two years, everyone is speculating. But we did go through something similar in 1918, a long time ago. And it was interesting, when you look at the, the country at that time, um, there was a lot of school districts, just like now, that, that essentially went to, that, that shut down. They didn't have the option of virtual schooling back then. They essentially shut down. They were given homework. They tried to make do. There were three large cities uh, that kept their schools open, New York, uh, Chicago, and New Haven, I believe. And it's interesting to see the sort of contrast in how students did from those school districts versus others. What do you think we've learned about trying to keep kids in school? Should we have another surge during this pandemic or a future pandemic? Is, is you know, we came out of school pretty early on in the spring of last year. Should we have done that? Uh, was, was there, were there any missteps now in retrospect? Well, it's, it's a really important point, Sanjay, because we have to learn from our past so we can do better in the future. And we certainly have learned a lot. We've learned in schools specifically, the layers of precaution really can help keep our kids in school and keep them safe. And those layers include universal masking, regular surveillance testing, improving ventilation, making sure kids stay home when they're sick. Uh, You know, my kids are in school. My kids' uh, uh, school actually implement uh, these procedures and these Mm. protocols. And overall, you know, our kids, you know, with with a few blips here and there, have been able to to do well uh, and get a decent education. And we're grateful for that. Uh, You know, I wish we had known that at the beginning of the pandemic, but it was new uh, back in early 2020, and we were all learning. But I think we'll be better prepared uh, for the time ahead. Uh, But Sunday, I do think that there's a a broader point that you're alluding to, which I think is critical. 
which is that we also have to take the lessons from the pandemic, not just about how to keep schools open, but about how to better take care of our children. And when I talk to kids across the country, and I do town halls with middle school students, with other students, uh, you know, just understanding what they've been going through, there is a a reckoning, if you will, uh, that seems to be emerging among kids and parents, a questioning of uh, what do we want in the future? What mm. kind of, what has this pandemic taught us about the kind of life that we want to lead? And I've heard many uh, kids say over and over again that they feel like they've been caught uh, in what they call hustle culture, the sort of culture that tells them that they've got to just get the best job, have the best title, get the best internship, uh, get top grades, get into the best school. And that's what determines success. That's what drives happiness. But I think this pandemic has forced us to reflect more deeply on what truly contributes to happiness and well-being among our kids. And it's not just the pursuit of wealth and power and fame. In fact, it's often not that. You and I know plenty of people who are wealthy, powerful, and famous and who are profoundly unhappy. But it is really the powerful relationships, the healthy relationships our kids have in in their lives that often is a huge driver uh, of whether or not they end up fulfilled and happy. And so the question I think for all of us coming out of this, not just government, but for families, is how can we better strengthen the relationships our children have with their family, with their friends, with their neighbors, recognizing that those relationships are a powerful buffer against stress. They're an important part of pandemic preparedness, and they're part of what we need to invest in to keep our kids healthy, happy, and strong. I think that's uh, such a a great point, uh, Dr. Murthy, to, to leave it on. I remember early on, uh, even, you know, we kept saying social distancing. And uh, I think you and I had a conversation where we said, we probably should call this physical distancing, yes. right? Because <laughs> we don't need to isolate ourselves. Uh, Dr. Murthy, can't thank you enough. Uh, you always teach us so much. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, it, it reminds us during a pandemic like this, the social human connection uh, is more important than ever. It's not a panacea, but it can go a long way and we should do everything we can to preserve it, even in a pandemic. Chasing Life will be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gaspare, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.